This morning, we looked at a passage from 1 Peter chapter 2, and in that passage, we looked at a couple of uh, the, uh, the practical ways in which Peter described how Christians can live in a non-Christian world, in a non-Christian environment, and yet still make an impact for Christ. And his suggestions and his, his encouragements and exhortations weren't to go uh, make a bunch of signs and stand on a street corner and picket the worldliness around them. Uh, his suggestion wasn't to, uh, to write uh, blistering critiques of your enemies and post it on Facebook and, and to show everyone how smart and clever you can be by showing uh, you know, how foolish your enemies are. Uh, that's not actually the way that he went about doing that. That sometimes is, uh, is what we are tempted to think is the best option, but he had a much different approach. And in essence, it's the approach of Jesus. Uh, that's not to say that Jesus never did stand up and, and say things that were true. He certainly did. And Peter, as he writes, he says, be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you. Do it with gentleness and reverence. But the idea is, yeah, speak and have a defense and be able to uh, defend why you're doing what you're doing and what you believe. But one of the reasons that you have to give a defense is because, theoretically, in that passage, people are asking you about the hope that is within you. Be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks. Well, what's going to cause people to look at you and stop what they're doing to ask about the hope that is within you? Like, what, in the, what would cause—I don't ordinarily do that when I just see someone living their life. What is it that would stop someone and have them look at you and see a source of hope? And have them ask about it. Well, if you read 1 Peter, you'll see some of the things that we talked about. Even through suffering, faithfulness. Even when being insulted, not insulting in return. That's what my do. If you insult every time you get insulted, no one's going to say, oh, this person's different. People are going to say, this is just like everyone I ever met before. If you respond with violence every time you receive violence, then then again, you're, you're not going to get questions about that. Everyone understands that. People understand returning insult for insult. That's the most human thing you could possibly do. People understand uh, returning vengeance for, for uh, mistreatment. Like that's, that's the natural inclination. That's what we want to do. What will cause people to ask why you're different is the imitation of Jesus. Remember Jesus dying on the cross, though he could have wiped out his enemies and gotten himself down in an instant. Uh, the book of Matthew specifically says he could have called thousands upon thousands of angels to come and to wipe out his enemies, but that's not what he did. Instead, Jesus willingly went to the cross. Instead, Jesus forgave the criminal on the cross next to him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Instead, Jesus was saying to the Father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. He was dying while at the same time, the people who were crucifying him, asking God for their forgiveness. That became a model in early Christianity. One of the ways you know that is because that's in, in Luke that Jesus does that. In the, the, the book of Acts, you can call it the Gospel of Acts if you want to. Uh, the, the Gospel of Acts, uh, which is a continuation of the book of Luke, uh, it continues showing how the life that Jesus lived impacted and continued through the life of the church. And so Jesus was the great evangelist and healer in Luke, and the apostles and disciples are great evangelists and healers in, in uh, Acts. Jesus is the great expositor of Jewish scripture in Luke, and his disciples generally are kind of clueless. But then you get to Acts, and all of a sudden, they're saying the same types of things he said. And they're teaching scripture with authority in such a way that it's, it's, uh, it is confounding the ideas of those who are trying to refute them. 
You see a lot of the things that Jesus does, they are doing. One of those is in Luke, when Jesus is dying. He's saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And then he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Now, we flip over to the book of Acts, and you see Stephen being stoned. And he says, Lord Jesus, do not hold this sin against them and receive my spirit. He, he takes the dying words of Jesus and he applies them in his own situation so that he begins to live out the model of Jesus. And I'll tell you, those deaths, the suffering that they endured and the way in which they handled it, that'll cause you to ask some questions about the hope that they have. Like Seeing Stephen dying in that manner, that tells you there's something different about it. He's been impacted in some way. And so we, we talked about these things uh, this morning and we talked about uh, how Jesus becomes our model for how to live and how to be faithful even in really difficult circumstances. And we, we talked about how in 1 Peter 2, the context there is how in different areas of life you could find yourself, you'll find yourself surrounded by non-Christians, and you'll have to know how to live in that way so that people will actually see the goodness of Christ and be willing to, to ask you. And we talked about how one of those examples is, is government. Another one is slavery. And then another one is marriage and in your own household. And in each of those instances, Peter says to be submissive, to be obedient. And that's not submission for submission's sake. And it's also not really obedience for obedience's sake. It's submission and obedience for the sake of Jesus Christ doing it for and in honor of Jesus, so that when people ask you, you can talk about Jesus. And so it's not submission because you're afraid to stand up for yourself. It's not obedience because you're afraid to do things your own way or you're too weak. It is absolutely not an act of weakness. It's absolutely not an act of fear. It is the determined resolution out of faithfulness to Jesus Christ to imitate and model him in the world around you so that you can then have an open door from which to tell people about Jesus. It's a tremendous act of strength, which is why so few people actually can do it, which is why so few people can model that type of restraint, that type of love that Jesus modeled and that he calls us to. That will change things. That can change a culture. That can get you a foot in the door for evangelism. But we talked about that, and I started just kind of briefly sketching some of the, uh, the ways perhaps that, uh, that talking about slavery itself is uh, done differently in the Bible than we might talk about slavery. Like if you read all of the passages in the Bible about slavery, um, if you were just to, like, without reference to the Bible, ask me how it should be addressed— I would say, well, it should obviously be abolished and outlawed. Like, I, I would give different answers than what you read necessarily in the Bible. And, and that happens a lot with things. And one of the, one of the, the noteworthy um, differences between the Bible and the way we commonly think, which I think is influenced by the Bible, deals with the topic of slavery. And sometimes it's interesting to ask why. Why it is that, um, the, why we take something as such a clear truth, and we look at the Bible, and the Bible doesn't address it necessarily the way that we would, is what's the connection between those two things. Um, and so what I thought we could do tonight is talk a little bit about uh, slavery in the Bible and uh, why it is that those passages are in there. One of the reasons that's important to do is sometimes people who don't like the Bible and people who are skeptics, this is an area that they'll turn to, and they'll say something along these lines. 
Everyone knows slavery is wrong. That's like moral ethic number one. No one should be in favor of slavery. And the Bible even gets that one wrong. So if the Bible's wrong on slavery uh, because it allows for slavery, then why should we trust it on anything else? If like the most obvious question in the world is no, don't have slaves, uh, then why is it that, uh, that we can't trust the Bible on that? And that's kind of the way that people present it. And so I think it's helpful if we're going to have a a defense or an answer to some of the things that were asked, maybe to talk about this uh, a little bit. And it's a sensitive topic, and so it's like kind of uncomfortable to talk about. Um, and I, I always try to be uh, honest with, with things like this, because the reality is um, just because I think something is obvious, if the Bible's saying something different than what I think is obvious, I shouldn't blindly trust what I think is obvious. Uh, I should say, as a disciple of Jesus, I'm going to trust the Bible. Uh, and so there's a sense in which we need to be very honest about the types of things that we read in the Bible and what, what we do with them. Um, and so I think this is an area we should as well. All right, so starting off, I just want to mention uh, briefly, and I talked about it this morning, uh, the grand narrative of Scripture is what should be our guiding interpretive principle for each of the individual parts of Scripture. And so you will find verses sometimes that you think, that's a strange verse, because when I think about God as a whole, that verse doesn't seem to fit well with what I think. And I think that sometimes happens with, with this topic as well, because the grand narrative of the Bible is freedom from slavery. That's like, that is foundational, both physical slavery through the Egyptian exodus and spiritual slavery, freedom and liberation from that. You see that all the way through. Uh, the foundational story of God's love for Israel and his calling of Israel and his covenant relationship with Israel is that he freed Israel from slavery. And so to ignore like that huge major theme and then focus on one or two verses that seem to uh, in some ways not not explicitly condemn all forms of slavery, but rather seek to modify how it's done and say, okay, so this passage right here says you can have a slave. Therefore, the Bible's in favor of slavery. Therefore, the Bible's wrong about slavery. It's kind of to miss the whole story for a passage you should think about a little bit. Um, and so we need to be careful not to do that. Uh, just thinking about a lot of the, the illustrations in the Bible, it's interesting sometimes how illustrations... Um, they, you have to be careful about taking them too far um, because there are illustrations in the Bible about us being slaves to God. Um, you know, uh, Romans chapter 6 says, you're a slave to whom you choose to obey, whether sin that leads to death or obedience, which leads to righteousness. And so apparently obedience in, in choosing to make that our master, obedience to God, leads to life. But obedience to sin is a slave master that leads you to death. And so in that, the idea is kind of like everyone's a slave. You're a slave to whom you choose. You have the freedom as a Christian to choose who your master is going to be. You can either have a good master that brings you life, or you can have a, a sorry master, a bad master, who brings about death, and the choice is yours. And uh, that's something that, that God is gifting to us, that option, that freedom through Jesus. But there are other illustrations in the Bible that don't necessarily talk about us being slaves at all. As a matter of fact, quite the contrary. Uh, John chapter 8 is a passage where uh, John, uh, Jesus is speaking with the Jews and he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
And upon hearing this, they become a little bit indignant. And they say, we are sons of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone, which is the oddest thing in the world for a descendant of Abraham to say. Uh, they, they have been slaves. They, are, they were slaves, certainly in Egypt. That's kind of their foundational story. But then also, you, you could say there's a form of slavery or at least a severe oppression taking place uh, under the, the uh, hand of the Romans over them right now. They're not a free people. And so Jesus uh, hears them say that, um, and he responds by saying, look, there's another sense in which you're slaves that you're not even, first off, you kind of are slaves, but in that way, but there's another sense that you're missing. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And the idea is that he is coming to bring about a new type of exodus, a new type of freedom from that slavery. In uh, John chapter 15, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Jesus presents a picture of his followers not being slaves, but being friends. And, and that is, you know, a, a short little picture of that freedom narrative of you're not slaves, you're actual friends with the Lord, you're allies, and, and you're in an alliance with him. Um, that's an important picture. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, when uh, at the transfiguration in chapter 9, Jesus is there with Moses, and he's there with Elijah, and this cloud appears overhead, and we find out that Jesus and Moses and Elijah are talking to each other, and what they're talking about is his departure, which would soon take place at Jerusalem. And the Greek word that's translated as departure there is the word exodus, exodus. Uh, it's the word that means the road out. That's what, that's what exodus means. It's the, the second book of your Bible is that word, <laughs> exodus. And so Jesus is leading an exodus. So that means the exodus wasn't just a one-time story that happened way back then in the days of Moses. Even in the days of Jesus, Exodus is still the main theme in everyone's mind, and Jesus is bringing about a new Exodus, a new type of freedom from slavery. So leaving slavery behind is central to what the Bible is about. Even Paul uses the same type of language. Paul's the one who used the illustration of you're either a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin. But in Galatians chapter 4, he's going to say something interesting about our relationship to slavery. In Galatians chapter 4, in verse 6, he says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He's saying you're not slaves to God. You are sons of God. And he has actually given the spirit of his son to you, which cries from your heart, Abba, Father. You get to call God your father because you're not just some slave. You've been freed from slavery and you are a son of God. And so even, again, just looking at the grand picture of the Bible, freedom from slavery is a central and crucial point about what the ministry of Jesus was all about. He came to proclaim release to the captives. Uh, Jesus came to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, which seems to be a, a reference to the idea of jubilee. Jubilee in the law of Moses, like even going back to the law of Moses, they had within their law code a year that other nations around them didn't have. And that year was about restoring uh, the land, so, so the way Israel's land situation worked up, worked out was um, 
everyone was parceled out certain areas of land. And that's where they lived. And that was their family's land. And it was their land from generation to generation to generation. Kids didn't usually, you know, graduate from high school, go off to college somewhere, and then start their own family and life in some new city. They tended to stay with their family on their family land year after year after year. Problems could emerge if, say, this family falls on some really rough times. Say, uh, there's a bad investment that's made and, and he loses all of its money or there's a drought or something happens and his land isn't able to produce and he's thinking, oh no, I have to find a way to provide for my family. I'm out of money. Here's what I can do. I can sell my land to somebody else and then they can have my land and I'll get money and uh, maybe I can even become a, a servant or a slave of theirs and, and uh, that can happen and so that I can be provided for during this difficult time. Th that was a realistic thing that happened in ancient Israel. That was a way that people could survive through hardship. But do you know how much the land was worth? Well, it kind of depends. Uh, you had to count how many years it was until Jubilee. Say you sell your land and you're four years away from the year of Jubilee. Well, that means you can get four years of harvesting out of that land. So that land is gonna be worth four years. Uh, and you would pay uh, the amount of money equivalent to four years of harvest for that land. Because once Jubilee comes, all the land is restored. So say your father had to sell your land and become a slave. Well, you're looking towards Jubilee because once Jubilee hits, all slaves are freed. All debts are, uh, are eliminated, and the land is returned to its rightful owners. So in Israel, you could not sell your uh, land perpetually. Uh, it would be returned to you. And so Jubilee was actually, it probably gave people a mixture of feelings. To the person who was having a really hard time, Jubilee was a great day of hope and restoration. To the person who had done quite well and had accumulated all of their neighbor's land, Jubilee would actually probably be a day of loss for them. But Jubilee was something that gave hope because we serve a God who puts an end to slavery, released to the captives, and proclaims the favorable year of the Lord. That's what Jesus' ministry is doing. He's bringing about jubilee. He's bringing about exodus. He's bringing about the end of exile. He is bringing about hope for life in a future where you can be sons and friends and heirs rather than slaves. And so the whole picture of the Bible, the big picture, slavery bad, freedom good. Uh, that is, the Bible does not get that wrong. The Bible is absolutely right on that. But what do you do when that's the grand story of Scripture, and yet you live with real people in a real time and in a real place where you don't get to make Roman laws, and you don't get to make uh, the laws of, of, of the land around you? In fact, you are an oppressed people. What do you do when slavery is not just something that exists, but is actually foundational to the whole Greco-Roman economic system. And what do you do if you find yourself living in a system like that and you're not one of the elite rulers of the age? You're not one of the governors or one of the, uh, the, the prefects or, or a, a, a king or an emperor. You know, what, what do you do if you are poor? Or maybe you yourself are a slave. Or maybe you're not someone who gets to change these sorts of laws, but you've come to have hope of redemption and of freedom through Jesus Christ, and you've committed yourself to following him. And as we've said earlier, the way, you know, looking at 1 Peter, the way that you make an impact according to Jesus is not by killing your enemies, is not by defeating and destroying your enemies. Jesus brought hope to the world and overcame his enemies through dying for them rather than killing them. And if you're supposed to model that, that means 
you don't have a lot of power to change laws, you don't get to determine laws, and you don't get to kill those people who make those laws. And so what is it that you do in that context to live faithfully with it? Well, that's the context in which these slavery passages pop up in the New Testament. And, and you're right, Paul does not say what you need to go and do is change all of the laws. That's not really an option. He doesn't say you need to stand up and fight and revolt against your masters. Again, that's not really a, a reasonable option, and it's also not the example of Jesus. So how is it that you make change socially, but also uh, make change in the lives of these people to, to give them better lives? Well, there's a number of things you can do, and I think that those are the types of things that you see coming out in the letters of Paul. And they're the types of things you see in, in early Christianity. Uh, but again, I think in order to even approach the subject, just historically, there are some things you should know about the way slavery was done in the ancient Greco-Roman world that is a little bit different than the way we tend to immediately think about slavery. Like, number one, it was not race-based. Slavery was not a racist system. Uh, it wasn't uh, a system where because this group of people was deemed as inferior, they f therefore they should be made to serve uh, mankind. And, and, you know, there were, if you look at arguments like pro-slavery arguments uh, in uh, our country uh, from a couple hundred, from, you know, 150 years ago, uh, you're not going to see the same types of reasoning usually that you'll find in the Bible, even though people did, unfortunately, quote the Bible to support it. But there would be things like, well, this race of people, they're, uh, they're not intelligent enough to survive on their own, and they wouldn't be successful if they were freed, and so it's actually better for them to have the system. The Bible says nothing even close to anything along that type of reasoning. Uh, but there are things in the Bible where if you understand the way slavery worked then, uh, that are a little bit different. For example, it wasn't based on race. Uh, in the Bible, explicitly kidnapping people or man-stealing, uh, stealing someone and forcing them to be a slave is absolutely condemned. That, that's kidnapping. You're not allowed to do that. The Law of Moses says that's, uh, uh, that is a capital offense. Don't do that. Um, and, and so you don't have that type of thing. Uh, in Greco-Roman world, it was a central part of the economic system that many people found themselves in, and it wasn't always necessarily the type of thing that would ruin your life. What I mean is there were people who um, they might, kind of like indentured servitude, it was a little bit different than slavery, you would willingly become a slave because it could help your status in life if you get affiliated with a household that is rather prominent. And so you could struggle day after day to make ends meet working on a trade and it's not working out very well, or you could have someone who would provide for you and take care of you and you could continue to be a doctor, but you would be a doctor for that person. And part of that was you ended up giving, uh, you know, agreeing to be that person's slave. Sometimes it was voluntary. Uh, and so you could, you could be a doctor, you could be a teacher, you could be an artist, you could be a musician, you could continue in the trade that you had, but you would end up doing that willingly uh, for someone as a slave. Now, if you do that, there's going to be some pros and some cons, uh, and it kind of depends on who your master is. Some people were probably good to work for, and it made your life better. Some people were probably, just look at employers, some of them are pretty good and some of them are pretty rotten. Uh, some of them are probably pretty rotten to you. And if you find yourself in that situation, that really changes the, the narrative, and that's what First Peter deals with in chapter 2, when he says, servants, 
uh, in chapter 2 and verse 18. And actually, the word servants there is a different word than the normal word for slave. A doulos is the normal word for slave, and that's not the word here. This would be more the word like, like a house servant or something. The word house is actually in it. Um, and so it, it would be someone who, uh, you know, probably works in your house, maybe lives at the house of someone. But he says, be submissive to your masters. That's also the different, different word than, uh, than master usually is. When, uh, uh, but anyway, it's not important. But, uh, but it's, it's just in Greek, the words are a little bit different. Um, but he says, with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, which some of them would be, but even to those who are unreasonable. Some of them are unreasonable. Some of you may have jobs where it seems like your coworkers or the person you work for can be unreasonable. What do you do in that situation? Well, that, that's how he's telling you to imitate the life and sacrifice of Jesus. But in a Greco-Roman world, you could willingly sell yourself to be a slave, and it also wasn't usually something that was a life sentence. It would be until you worked out a certain debt or uh, for an agreed-upon period of time, and sometimes you could, if you were able to save your money well during that time period, buy your freedom back early. Or if you demonstrated that you were a good and faithful servant, uh, you could be set free early. And so there were things like that that you could do that would actually benefit you. And so the fact that it's a central part of the Greco-Roman economy means it would be really, really hard to write from the perspective of someone who is saying abolish slavery. Uh, because it, I, I guess, I think Christians should care about the environment. Um, I think part of our, uh, part of our job is uh, to care for and rule this world well. I think that's something that, that Christians should care about. All right, if you look at things that potentially harm the environment. There are a lot of things that we do that potentially harm the environment. Some of them are kind of important, though. Some of them are central to our daily life. Um, you know, automobiles and, and the use of gas and all that, like, probably aren't great long-term for the environment. I'm not trying to get into environmentalist debate, but I'm just saying, like, there are some things like that that probably aren't great, you know. But imagine if we then made it, okay, a Christian doctrine that we are not going to drive cars anymore and we're not gonna use any gas. That would be really hard to do, right? Granted, that's something potentially we could, we could do, I guess. We'd have to all get bikes or something. But, but, but like, imagine that's something. But then imagine we said, no, not only are we going to do that, we are going to change all of society so that no one is allowed to do that. That would be kind of, that would be beyond what's even reasonable for us to think about. If we really had a problem with it, or if we were kind of like Amish in our thinking, uh, and we really had a problem, we could think about doing certain things different among ourselves, but we're not really thinking about how to make the rest of the world do that and how to force it upon them. Um, and, I mean, you could come up with a bunch of examples. See, what are things 500 years from now that people looking back on us We'll look back and think, oh, I can't believe the church was complacent in that. That we might not think of as perfect, but they're just kind of a part of life. Um, you know, I, again, I'm not I, just using your imagination, trying to think of what something, is it possible that our prison systems, 500 years from now, what, you know, when someone breaks the law, they have, you know, ways that they immediately reform someone and they have like these systems that they work people through and it, you know, they come out as good law-abiding citizens on the other side and they look back and they're like, they stuck people in prison cells with other criminals day after day after expecting that to make them better people. And like, they can look back and say, oh, I can't believe in the church, 
the church, instead of saying abolish prisons, what the church did was they said visit prisoners and evangelize to them and, uh, and, and try to help them rehabilitate after they come out. Because that's, I'm, again, I'm not up here trying to preach against prisons. What I'm saying is I'm trying to think of what's something that we all just accept as a normal part of life. That potentially, years down the road, people looking back could think, oh, that was an evil that was taking place. And the church didn't try to abolish the evil. They tried to teach you how to live with that evil in a way that honored Christ. I think you have that type of situation taking place when it comes to slavery. I think you have a situation where it's not an ideal situation, but Christians aren't changing Roman laws. The people writing these letters, they're not lawmakers, and they're not writing to lawmakers. They are people generally at the bottom of society writing to other people generally on the bottom of society who have had this oppression forced upon them, and they're trying to tell each other how to live with this oppression in a way that honors Jesus. And so again, we're, the Bible isn't written for mass social reform or to change all the laws of a nation. That's just, it teaches you how to live within the laws of a nation with Jesus as your true king. How do you live as a slave with Jesus as your true king? How do you live as a master with Jesus as your true king? And as you read the Bible from that perspective, it makes more sense why Paul doesn't just say, eliminate slavery henceforth and forevermore. If, if you tried to do that, like, that would, that would be seen as a, an attempt to collapse the Roman economy. Like, if you're talking about things that would bring persecution, that would be an act of insurrection itself, writing against the, 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 uh, what's foundational to how they do it. It would be, you know, like us being against money or something. Like, could we survive that way if we became like a little community? That I suppose, but trying to change all of culture in order to model that would be something that would be outside of the realm of possibility. And so I think that's what we're kind of dealing with. And so what Paul does and what the other New Testament writers do, instead of writing as if they're lawmakers for a nation, they write to Christians telling them how to live in the situation they find themselves in, how to model the life of Jesus. And if you're a slave, do you know how you do that? Well, you see a number of things. In Paul's, uh, in Paul's letter of, uh, to the church at Ephesus, he tells masters, do not even threaten your slaves. Like, don't be harsh. Don't even, he does, not only don't actually like abuse them or anything, don't even threaten them because you yourself have a master who's in heaven. Look at the way that your master, God, has treated you and treat your slaves like that. That would be a way of, you would extend grace to them. You would extend freedom to them. That's what God has done for us. That's what you do for your slaves. In fact, when Paul writes to Philemon, who has a slave who ran away from him and possibly stole something and then got sent back, he tells him, I want you to accept him back. But he uses the phrase, no longer as a slave, but a brother. Like Philemon uh, Onesimus became a Christian, got sent back, and he's saying, I want you to see him as a brother. Paul, when he writes about the church, can say radical things like there is no Jew nor Greek no slave or free, no male and female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. In each of those uh, categories, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, to tell, to tell a, a slave and a master, you are equal in Christ. To the slave is going to sound pretty nice. To the master, he's going to be like, excuse me, I've, I've actually done quite well in this world. Like, like, that's the type of thing which will make it to where more slaves will probably want to become Christians 
than masters will. Uh, because for a master, it's almost like a demotion to the level of a slave. But to a slave, it's a promotion to the level of a freedman to, to God. And so when that happens, Christianity, we look back and, and we might read some of these passages and say, oh, that's not how I would talk about slavery. But it actually sounded really good to someone who was a slave, which is why so many early Christians were in fact slaves. And we're, in fact, poor people. In fact, that was one of the criticisms that was leveled against Christianity, is it's a religion full of slaves and poor and women and the people who, you know, are, are insignificant in society. And you know what? Fine. Because our Lord is a crucified criminal uh, who was crucified by the Romans. So it kind of makes sense that that's where we would find our hope, even if we're not the, the most important, wealthy, rich, and, you know, famous people in society. Sometimes it's the people who are not blinded by their own uh, self-importance who can most clearly see the value of the cross. And that seems to be what Paul and what the other New Testament writers are focusing on. And, and we know, we know that this ended up having an impact because Christianity, while it was often uh, primarily a religion of slaves and those who were not important and not lawmakers— there eventually came to be people who had some pretty significant wealth and people who were uh, pretty important in society who became Christians over the next couple of hundred years. And we have writings of some of them about how the, the seeds that were planted in the New Testament documents changed the way that they thought about the world around them. And uh, you, if you ever get a chance, you should look up some of the Cappadocian fathers. Uh, and you'll see that they had a way of viewing mankind that... Uh, elevated all people in the eyes of God. Um, Basil of Caesarea is someone who, while not writing explicitly saying, uh, you know, he's for abolition, he didn't think Christians ought to own slaves. And he thought that uh, anyone who did uh, should treat them very, very well and, uh, and uh, that, uh, that they should be treated as brothers. He also uh, gets credit for starting one of the very first public hospitals. Uh, see, there were hospitals that existed, but they were generally like for the military or for people who are very important. He started health centers and hospitals for anyone in society who was sick and who had needs that they could go and actually get treatment and attention from a medical professional and get care from the church itself, where Christians would care for those who were in need, and they would spend their time serving those who were in need, you know, bringing them water, bringing them heal. Why would they do that? Well, because all human beings matter. And that's central to Christianity. Even the people at the bottom of society should get medical care. Even the people who are slaves should be able to have the hope of freedom. Uh, John Chrysostom uh, speaks about how, you know, Christians shouldn't have slaves and about how you shouldn't have, no one should be able to have like a bunch of them so that they could live a life of luxury and, and, and excess. Uh, if you have them at all, it's only for the bare minimum and make sure that they are taken care of well. Uh, you can see how those ideas were counter to the culture of the Romans around them. Like Christians have always had a struggle, even in the earliest days of the New Testament. Uh, how do you live as a Christian in a world where slavery is an essential part of it? Um, but saying it's an essential part even starts to become not necessarily true. Because you eventually get to the writings of Gregory of Nyssa, who he writes explicitly for the abolition of slavery in the early days of Christianity. And his reasoning for it's really 
fabulous. Uh, he goes back to the creation account, to God on day six, creating uh, mankind in his image. That's all mankind created in the image of God. And he created him in his image to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the, sea of the, of the fish of the sea. And you read Genesis 1, like 26 through 28, and you see that mankind is created in the image of God to rule over the animals. And so what he goes on to say is for human beings to then take another human being and place them under that rule is to overstep what God allowed and called for humans to do in the act of creation. We are to be rulers, but not over one another like slaves. We rule and we uh, care for God's world in the animal world, not one another. And so that was kind of a radical new way of thinking about it. He also spent time writing and preaching against the very act of buying a slave because he said there's no way to do that that is uh, that's consistent with what God created us to be because there's no way to put a worth or a value, a dollar amount on the image of God. See, what you have to do in order to buy a slave is remove the whole concept of being created in the image of God and just see someone as how much are they worth based on how many years of work I can get out of them. So you think of how much they can lift and how strong they are and how uh, durable they are and how many years they have left and you try to figure that out and you can come up with a price for someone that way but you can also come up with a price for a cow that way. You can come up with a price for, for anything that has no value that way if you're only looking at its utility. But for Christians, other people are not just what they can do for you. And they're not just utility. They are created in the very image and wisdom and goodness of God. And how do you put a price on God's image? You can't do it. So you can't buy a slave for any price because that's not something that you can, you can calculate a value of. It's... it's it's more valuable than any money you have. You know, no money is worth the image of God. And so, you can, and so that was some of his reasoning. Those are some of the first arguments that we see for the abolition of slavery. And while Christianity has been complicit, certainly in slavery for many years, there has always been a corrective strand also. And when you look at the abolition in the United States and in Great Britain, that was largely led by people influenced by Christianity and the teachings of Jesus. When you look at the life of William Wilberforce, uh, who was a politician who spent his entire life, basically, after his conversion, fighting against the slave trade in Europe, you see that Christianity has been central to the abolition and to the overthrow of slavery, and it comes from a lot of these documents, like the book of Philemon, and like some of the things that Paul says about, about masters and about just some of the simple teachings of Jesus, do unto others as you would have them do unto you is really, really difficult to do if you have a slave who you mistreat. And so all of that, I know that we're not, if you're talking about uh, relevant lessons, it's like no one's going around saying that we should have slaves. And so preaching a lesson against that, uh, you might say it's kind of irrelevant. But one of the reasons that I think it's important to do it is because it is something that's used to attack and to critique the Bible. And I think the Bible has actually done a reasonably good job at, in the context in which it was written, planting the seeds that would lead to the freedom of mankind. And, and the grand story of the Bible is about how God brings that about in our lives. So the Bible certainly knows that slavery is not a good thing. And we shouldn't read the Bible so poorly as to let one or two verses eliminate 
the grand story of the whole thing. Um, and so I think it helps us read the Bible a little bit better. I think it helps us can kind of know how to respond to some of those critiques. But then also, there is something beautiful. When, when you think about yourself and your walk with God, about recognizing how prominent slavery has been in the days of the Bible and throughout the world, and knowing that the God you serve has not called you to be his slave. He's called you to be his friend, and he's called you to be his heir, and he's called you to be his son. And that matters. God has seen you as more valuable than just what you can do. And God created you to be more valuable than just what you can accomplish. God sees value in you for who you are, and he sent his son to die to bring you freedom where you are so that you could live with him as an heir in his own household because God loves you. And I think that matters a whole lot. Um, and so if there's anyone here uh, tonight when you're looking at your life and your walk with God, know that he loves you very much. He gives you the opportunity for freedom right now because a lot of times the sinful world in which we live can feel like it is, has us chained to it. It can feel like slavery. And he's offering you freedom from that through the blood of Jesus. And if you have the need, please let it be known. And come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.